that is also the beauty of printmaking, right? Is that I can seduce people into looking at my imagery longer than they would because of craft. Hello, print friends, and welcome. I'm your host, Miranda Metcalf. This is a bilingual podcast, so if you subscribe to us, you'll be getting episodes in English with me, as well as in Spanish with Ronaldo Gil Zambrano. Together, we speak to people from around the globe about their practice and passions in the fields of print media and multiples. Hello, print friend is brought to you by Speedball Art Products. In 1915, Ross F. George published the first edition of the Speedball textbook, which quickly became the superlative resource for artists and letterers of all ages and skill levels. This is a great resource for the gig poster gang or for folks who want to develop their own fonts and letter forms for the screen or relief printed work. In celebration of the 105th year anniversary of the edition's debut, the 25th edition of the Speedball textbook has a convenient lay-flat construction and 120 pages of examples, contributors' work, and innovative technical insights that is sure to inspire and appeal to scribes across the spectrum of skill and experience. There's a link in the show notes. This episode is also brought to you by Legion Paper. Legion Paper is a fine art paper company representing the best papers in the world. They either stock it, source it, or make it. With brands like Stonehenge, Somerset, Coventry, Reeves, Arches, and more, Legion is the best paper resource for every artist's and printmaker's needs. Learn more about the variety of papers Legion stocks at www.legionpaper.com. My guest this week is Ron Abram. We talk about his childhood growing up in the religious context of Puerto Rican Catholicism and the social context of the 1970s in West Berlin. We also get into getting inspiration from pop culture and Grimm's fairy tales, postmodernism, and David Bowie. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, and prepare to get ziggy with it with Ron Abram. Hi, Ron. How's it going? Hey, Miranda. It's good to be here. Thank you for joining me. I am really happy to talk to you. I was introduced to your work when I was the juror for Print Santa Fe 5x5, and I just had this feeling of, where has this been my whole life? (laughs) (laughs) I just really connected to it immediately and was saying, this is what I want. I want this in the show. And of course, it's all done anonymously. And so you don't get to know who you're during until later. And so it just worked out really, really well that like now I get to talk to the the person behind the art and we get to have a nice chat and a little wrap up conversation of, of the whole Prince Santa Fe shebang. Yeah. I love this, Miranda. Thank you for, I'm so grateful to be here today. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, I would love to invite you to introduce yourself as the who you are, where you are, what you do. Hello, print friend questions. Yeah, my name is Ron Abram, and I am currently here in Columbus, Ohio, on the south side in my studio here. But I am in countdown mode to be in Santa Fe, which I'm looking forward to being part of Print Santa Fe and the exhibition at Zane Bennett. What I do is I'm an artist who's focused his life in printmaking, 
for decades now with, with a primary focus on etching. And I've spent a lot of time using acid baths and proofing and printing. And I still, all these years later, still love it as much as I, mm. I did in 1981 when I first pulled my first print. And I'm also an educator. I teach at Denison University, which is a small liberal arts college right outside Columbus, Ohio. And I'm their printmaking drawing professor, but I also teach in queer graph in queer studies. I teach queer a queer graphics course. I also have an inclusive approach to printmaking in that I teach courses such as contemporary comics and an artist book and zine course and others. So, and, and I'm as excited as being an educator as I was when I first started teaching. I'm currently on sabbatical though, so I've had nice. a sabbatical for this whole year. So it's been it's been such a privilege and such a, a treat. Wonderful. Well, I definitely want to circle back to the queer graphics course. That sounds really, really interesting. But to begin at the beginning in Hello Print Friend fashion, where did you grow up and what role did art play in that part of your life? I am a military kid. Mm. So my father was from a small town in Missouri, Carthage, Missouri. And I think his whole I think his dream <laughs> was to leave that small town. And mm. so he joined the army at the end of World War II. And the first place he was stationed was San Juan, Puerto Rico, where he met my mom and who also had dreams of travel and adventures. And so they married and, and then raised a family of four of us and we traveled a lot. So we moved every two or four years. We spent five years in Europe when my dad was stationed in Germany. And, you know, I've, one time my dad asked me, why did you become an artist? <laughs> and I said, well, dad, I drew every day of my life because we were always moving, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so it was the thing that I, I trusted that was consistent. My dad got a little bit upset, but I said, no, there's nothing to be, there's nothing. It's, like, it's, it's, it's something's meant so much to me. But I think it did, you know, I spent a lot of time drawing in front of the TV set and I drew, I drew TV shows, I made comics, I made little books, I kept lists, I kept scrapbooks. And so the relationship of culture to the work I made was always kind of embedded. I remember when I was like seven or eight, I made a book of stars. <laughs> so it was a book of celebrities, but it was like all circa 1970s. So it's like, <laughs> <laughs> the, the cast of airports and airport 75 and but it was that profound that I loved pop culture and I loved to draw and I came home and I drew I remember growing up every day of I drawing every day of my life and and I I, I think the other thing is that my whole family was pretty creative and you know maybe it's the nature of being in in the military and having to move so much but I had older brothers who made movies mm and cast us all in the movies <laughs> they made. And so there was all, we always were very able to entertain ourselves alone. Right. Mm. So, and so anyway, I think I knew I always made, I always drew, but I don't know if I really knew what it meant to be an artist until I went off to college. So before that, I, I loved Walt Disney you know, I, I thought making art was making something super, super cute. <laughs> and I also loved Mad Magazine. 
So there was not as cute, but yeah, yeah, it kind of it's it also deals with social commentary as a sort of sarcastic attitude. So it was and in many ways, I thought maybe that was the adult world. Mm. And I was obsessed with their artists who did their movie satires, a cartoonist named Mort Drucker. And I I thought when I grow up, I'm either going to work for Disney or I'm going to be the new Mort Drucker. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So so then when I went to college And I had maybe an experience similar to others where I took drawing and had a mentor who then encouraged me to take printmaking. My whole idea of what it meant to be an artist became much more expansive. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's that that landscape sort of divided between Disney and Mad Magazine. It reminds me of something that R. Crumb says in the Mm -hmm. documentary about him where he talks about how he had a stint working at Disney and he said it infected him with this cuteness gene. (laughs) And like everything he drew after that, like had this cuteness that he just couldn't quite get rid of. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, it's so funny that, yeah, it's like picking up an accent or something. I always mention that because I, I think people say, well, you went in a whole different direction. I go, I don't know if I did. I sometimes mm-hmm. I still feel like I'm that kid drawing in front of the TV set. You know, that culture has embedded itself upon my, my, my sense of identity. Absolutely. Yeah. And so with the, with the moving around that you did, as, as often military families do, were you very aware of sort of a, a changing cultural landscape as a kid? Or is it just kind mm-hmm. of like the water that you swim in and it's mm-hmm. not visible to you? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, and maybe this has to do with, maybe this is also a dynamic of being an artist is, yeah, at times I was very, I was lonely, right? Mm-hmm. And so, and I was, a, I was pretty quiet. I mean, I, when I was in school, I didn't talk that much. Mm-hmm. I mean, and I got rewarded for doing drawings in class. So I knew I felt appreciated in that way, but and so moving around, when I said made that comment to my dad, it it, it kind of saved me, you know. And also now, there were years where I, I didn't I didn't really understand what art therapy was, but mm-hmm. now I realize that there were so many ways that I was able to connect with the world through my work, and that ex- that goes back to when I was a child, but also as an adult, right? Like, luckily, I had my my work to be able to express myself and connect to my identity in that way. Yeah. But one of the biggest moves is we moved to Germany. We moved to Germany. My dad was stationed in Germany from 1972 to 1976. So those were pretty, that was my adolescence. Yeah. So my husband is German. So sometimes I make the I make the comment that, well, I went through my adolescence when I was in Germany. So yeah. it's kind of a natural trajectory <laughs> that I would marry a German. So. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think something that kind of you're talking about like art therapy is that art, the creation of art happens in the body, right? Like it's a mm-hmm. it's a it's a corporeal act. And I think that that's so powerful in a culture that can treat our bodies just like like a plant stand for our head, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> like it's just yeah, like yeah. the body is what moves the head around because the head is where the important stuff happens. But of course, you know, so much of of how we need to 
process and understand and move feelings through happens in the body. So I think there's like the act of creation, but then just like the act of moving, the act of connecting eye to hand, that's so powerful. And so I can imagine like particularly as someone who's experiencing that loneliness of moving, my mother's father was in the Coast Guard. And so that was like, that was like every two years, a new port town essentially. And so yeah. she's spoken of that to me in in depth and how it affected her. And so that idea that like all of that stuff, it comes out not only in the finished product, but I think also in the, in the very act of creating. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if that's what you mean by art therapy, but yeah. that's sort of what it occurred to me as you were talking. Yeah. And I think even the act of drawing being an act of repetition, again, mm. this is kind of, this is like a prelude to printmaking, right? Is I feel like that assured me, right? Like that was a calming activity. And, you know, I wasn't an athlete or anything like that. And so that activity of drawing, that activity of repetition, of routine, at an early age, I understood what it meant to have a studio practice, right? I wasn't aware of that term, but I had a routine, right? Come home, do your homework and draw. So. Yeah. And so you discovered printmaking in college, is that yes. correct? Yes. Yeah. Tell me about that experience for you and, and maybe why it kind of lit you up, do you think? Yeah. I went to the University of Central Florida in Orlando. It's a big university now. It's actually home to Flying Horse Editions. Yep. But at that time, it was very small. And uh, there was actually very similar to the program I teach at here at Denison, but it was, they had one faculty for different, there was one painter, there's one sculptor and so forth like that. And so my professor, my drawing professor was Robert Rivers, who's kind of, to me, is one of the great artists of America, incredibly prolific, uh, deals with difficult subject matter in his work. Um, He doesn't make prints now anymore. He's focused in drawing, but at that time he was very much making etchings and, And I had never seen work like his. He did work that dealt with his mother going through cancer treatments and other political issues. I had never been aware of that. And Robert is of the lineage of Warrington Colescott. So Mm -hmm. his professor studied in Warrington Colescott. And so like others, I'm sure, like you took a drawing class. I knew nothing about printmaking. And Robert said, oh, you should take a printmaking class. Uh And so, and then I, I was... I like today, I love, like, it's an act of alchemy, right? Like you go into the acid bath and this kind of mysterious, magical collaboration happens. And, and then this equipment, I couldn't believe, I thought this 500 year old equipment was like new, right? I was like, I was <laughs> what thrilled. is this new technology? Like, yeah, what is this new technology? I loved it, you know? And, and for me, all these years later, that magic, I still feel that. And so Robert was very much, in every sense of the word, a great mentor. And I was his protege. I printed for him. He went on sabbatical one year. And then I was also lucky enough to study with a British printmaker named Marcus Reese Roberts. And interestingly enough, Marcus's professor at Slade was Bartholomew Santos, who, who he studied at the Slade with Warrington Colescott. <laughs> Oh, really? Yeah. So that so five degrees Marcus, of Warrington Cole Scott. <laughs> yeah. So that whole lineage. I don't know. I feel like I always with my students talk about lineage and the history of who you are as a printmaker or an artist. And so I feel very much 
like I am of that figurative sort of socially aware contempt approach to making prints. Um, mm. And so, and, but Marcus also introduced photo etching to me at that time. And he was like, he still is like the master of great aquatents. And so I feel very lucky in my undergraduate to have had both of them mentor me. So, yeah. and I was, I was driven. <laughs> so. Yeah. And so what was your early work like? Did you, were you someone who sort of always knew what they wanted their voice to be and what mattered to them? Or, or was that more of an arc for you? I think because of Robert's influence, I knew that subject matter was open to be explored. Mm -hmm. I also fell in love with art history at that time. Yeah. And so, again, I was very obsessive. (laughs) (laughs) And so my print one class, I did like 60 prints. Like I did this little miniature print series of A Dance of Death. Mm. And it was, and you know, it was... It was influenced by driving in Florida at the time and seeing this roadkill along the way. Oh, <laughs> like wow. It was like you go down this long highway and you yeah. would see roadkill. And then I th- and I was studying Line and other mm-hmm. other artists who, who who had completed Dance of Deaths. And so I used kind of a contemporary approach and I did this whole series in print one. And and it was a simple idea, but then I was obsessive with it. And so it kind of kept leading me to other thematic series. I also, in my undergraduate sophomore summer, I went to the University of Georgia's Cortona program, and I, I studied with Ken Kirschlich there. And I, of course, was influenced by everything Italian, mm-hmm. and still am in certain ways. And I did a series after that that ended up being my application for Tyler School of Art, where I went to graduate school. And that was a series of seven deadly sins. Nice. So. Very nice. I don't I don't know if you if if I've I'm sure I've mentioned it at some point in the 200 episodes I've done, but I wrote my thesis on Peter Bruegel's The Elder oh. Seven Deadly Sins. Oh, no, I didn't. And know so that. any oh. any connection back to Said Living Deadly Sins, I just oh. feel like it's such a a rich and wonderful concept uh-huh. for artists to explore and you know this this idea of creating a contract mm-hmm. sort of through which humans can look at and and judge themselves and of course judge one another and that whole idea i think of of what people talk about is god and the devil or maybe another more Santa Fe S cultures, you would call it your higher self and your shadow self, you yeah. know, this, like the duality of people and that idea that there can be unquestionable sins like that, mm-hmm. like pride, like envy, like greed, like lust. Mm-hmm. And that, and yet they all have a pleasure to them as well. Mm-hmm. That is forbidden. Anyway, I just love it as yeah. a subject matter. So you yeah. Know, and, and at that time, this con the context that I made that those seven deadly sins was the early eighties. Mm. And so I, I didn't come out as a gay man until later in life. And that time was so scary with yeah. AIDS and because of my Puerto Rican Catholic background, I look at that work now and see that it has so much to do about repression. It's mm. and so when I was talking about art therapy before 
I realized like I was so repressed at that time that luckily I made work that allowed some expression to come forward. Yeah. It's, it's fitting because in the background I can see David Bowie and a crucifix or not a, a, not a crucifix. Sorry. I'm not Catholic with a rosary. So there's a rosary draped over David Bowie, which is such a wonderful vibe (laughs) in your background, in your studio. It's all mixed of iconography, right? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Well, and I think that, uh, yeah, this could be a whole nother podcast, of course, but the performative flamboyance of elements of the Catholic faith oh, is super much. interesting. Yes, yes. You know, the 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 incense and the robes and the drapes yes. and this robe that's only for this special day and yeah. and palm fronds and all of it I, I think is is kind of camp in its own way. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The, I mean the other element of my story is that with that work I applied to Tyler School of Art in Philadelphia, an amazing print program. And I was accepted and offered their assistantship in Rome, Italy. They have a oh, campus, wonderful. Temple, Rome, Temple University, Rome. And so I went there in 84, 85 and continued work along those themes there. Again, so focused on being in this kind of Catholic tradition there in Rome. The interesting thing that just happened for me is I was just a visiting artist back at the same campus 38 years later, I went back mm. and I was making prints, etchings, photopolymers in the same studio I had as a graduate student. Amazing. So for me, as a sort of military kid, I never really went back to places I was before. Mm. So this was Devin Kovac is the printmaker there. It was such a gift to be able to return and to kind of look back at the work I made there and contextualize it for who I am now. So, How interesting. Yeah. Wow. And so at, at that time... In terms of your your personal story, when you went there as a graduate student, were you still someone who like identified as Catholic in a way that informed your work mm-hmm. sincerely? Yeah, I did. When I was in Rome, I focused a lot on the idea of being a saint or a sinner. Mm. And one, this is there's a lot a lot of elements of location that always inform my work, although you don't necessarily see it in my work. Mm-hmm. That and this is kind of the dichotomy of it all. I was going to do my laundry at this place called Campo di Fiori, which is a mm-hmm. piazza kind of near Trastevere. And I thought it was, oh, I had such a nice experience taking my laundry there. A nice woman who would do, this is like the 80s. So there wasn't laundromats back then in Rome. And so, and then I did research and I found out that it was a site of execution. Oh. <laughs> it had a horrible, dark dark background. And so I did all this work of sort of, it looks very graphic and, you know, like this is right and this is wrong, but it's very much about the ambiguity of what makes a saint. Mm-hmm. You know? And again, as I said before, so much of it was dealing with my own repression. Right. But at the time I wasn't, I couldn't articulate that. So. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Very, very much Catholic. Interestingly enough, the work I just did there now is a whole new series that's it's become much more complicated. It's work focused on the writer and film director, gay activist, also Pierre Paolo Pasolini. And so I use a gay center as my subject matter on this return visit. And also there's so much kind of homoerotica in Roman antiquities. So I use, yeah. it's like the flip side of my earlier experience. That's uh, that's definitely something that I 
I picked up immediately, at least upon seeing the series that's exhibited in Zane Zane Bennett, Mm -hmm. even though the figures are wearing accessories of cowboys, Mm -hmm. I, I saw wrestling on Grecian vases. I saw all of this sort of thing. And, and, and that really fascinating intersection of hypermasculinity and homoeroticism, mm-hmm. which is so not necessarily rejected is too much of a word, but I feel like it's something that at least contemporary American society, it's very uncomfortable yeah. for them. And in a way that when you look at antiquity or you look at other cultures, historical and contemporary, it's not there. It's like, it's like, of course you can be strong and beautiful and capable and gay, mm-hmm. you know? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was even interesting in this, this recent visit, of course, I was posting a lot on Instagram, right? I was posting the work I was making and I was posting influences. And so I posted some pages from my sketchbook and this happens to a lot of gay artists now on Instagram is the algorithm took it down my own drawings. Oh no. But then when I posted photos of Roman statues, much more explicit. They uh-huh. get taken down. So. <laughs> That's so interesting. I was going to say in response to your comment too, Miranda is that is also the beauty of printmaking, right? Is that, I can seduce people into looking at my imagery longer than they would because of craft, right? Mm-hmm. Like they can, oh my God, look at that line work or look at that aquatint. And then hopefully then they pull back and they consider the issues that are inherent in it. Yeah. Yeah. The, it's it's beautifully done. I just was hanging the Prince Santa Fe exchange mm-hmm. portfolio, which you were very gracious enough to participate yeah. in. And so I got to see your work in person. That was actually for the first time I, I saw uh-huh. it in person. And it's just beautifully, beautifully done. And unfortunately, we, we didn't get one in the trade. <laughs> I was like, damn oh. it. But that's the trade portfolios. That's, that's all the, the luck of the draw. That's part of the fun. But yeah. And and so that, as as you say, like and, and the series that is going to be exhibited in the 5x5, five five, it is very much a beautiful balance of of kind of a rawness and a mm-hmm. graphicness mm-hmm. with a beauty. And again, I feel like that is that is a, a dichotomy that makes people very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And also it's very beguiling at the same mm-hmm. time. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, there's, again, this is work that I have just made this year during my sabbatical. So I'm super super happy to be showing it for the first time in Santa Fe. And so I've I've never been in this situation in my career is that I actually have three series simultaneously going. Mm. (laughs) I'm here in my studio and I have like, like 30 proofs of 30 plates here. So I have the Cowboys, which there's over 20 of them. And then I have the other, there's other two other prints in Zane Bennett that are from this series called poor Cayetano. And that is that is an exploration of my own queer lineage in regard to my family, my mother's mm. side. And so I, in 2017, I had had a show in Philadelphia, a solo show in Philadelphia that explored. I went back to Puerto Rico and I kind of thought about in, what influenced my own sense of identity as a, as a gay Latin heritage man. 
And I did work that kind of reinterpreted Latin folklore as from a queer perspective. Mm. And I was making some animation at that time too with my mm-hmm. etchings. And so I wanted to take it one step further. And so I started doing research about my mother's family that immigrated from Spain to Puerto Rico. And it doesn't, it's not that far back. It's like the 19th century. And I had a grandfather, Cayetano, great-great-grandfather, Cayetano Roher. And so I just imagined what would it be to have a quarter of those stories from the past that we don't know of. And so I superimposed images on photopolymer of the Barcelona area where he was from, my family was from, and uh, with imagery that I had, life drawing imagery that I had done on Zoom during the pandemic. So, so there's two. So those are the two other prints there. Zane Bennett. Beautiful, yeah. So that the the Print Santa Fe five by five is going to be at Zane Bennett Contemporary Art in Santa Fe, and it'll be from April twenty eighth through the seventeenth of June. So even if you're not here, dear listeners, for Print Santa Fe, you've got a. F- fair amount of time to come see it. So please do. I think it's going to be a really, really good show. Yeah. So something else that that kind of came through in your work when I was doing some research and kind of preparing for our talk, you know, was this reinterpretation of folklore. You mentioned it sort of just recently in, in this in in that series, but you've done it with Grimm's fairy tales mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. And this wonderful series about this park in was it East Berlin? Yeah, well, yes, yes. Yeah, and yes, and that Berlin. and that 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 metaphor from of kind of going into the woods metaphorically and literally, I think, with queerness and and having your own story arc. But I'd I'd love to hear you sort of mm-hmm. speak to using it, using that existing framework and and putting your narrative over it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, this series of Merkenbrunnen prints and also films and also sculptures that I did for a long time were inspired by my return to, I had been to Berlin as a kid on the West, I had been in West Berlin, my parents took us there for a weekend, but so there was this whole other side, right? Mm-hmm. And then the other connection for me to Berlin is that my father had been in the army, but then he got out of the army. It was just active duty. But then when the Berlin Wall went up the year I was born, he went back into active duty and then decided to join the Air Force. And then that was his career. And so Mm. it's interesting that the Berlin Wall would be connected to me, right? Mm -hmm. And so the past 12 years or so, I've been doing artist residencies and I went to Berlin for an artist residency. And a friend of mine had recommended this fairy fountain park, Merkenbrunnen. And he said, oh, Ron, you'll love it. You love pop culture. You love comics and cartoons. You'll just love it. There's some, it had kind of a, a sort of a playful quality to it, right? And so I, I, it was November and we had had a big snowfall. And so I walked, I trudged over to this mm. park and these 10 grim fairy tale statues were all put away for the winter in these little houses, these oh, little cabins, huts. Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't see them, right? And so I had to I had to wait. I think I was back in the States where I finally did some research to see what they looked like, but I didn't I had no idea what the statues looked like. And then I did research and I found out that during when the wall was up and the DDR existed, this park was a known gay cruising site. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That and to the point that 
that if you said American Brunin, it was code for being gay. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, and, you know, again, doing more research and finding out what Berlin was like before the war, before World War II, it was a great queer bohemia. And Mm -hmm. they were were dealing with trans right issues in the 1930s. It was pretty open and pretty much of what we would consider a contemporary political queer perspective. So then the war happened and then communism happened and all repression came in. And so, again, connecting to my own sense of identity, I thought about those huts and like, oh, it's interesting. It's like a queer, you know, the, the kind of individuality and identity is contained with those huts, but we can't get to it, right? The moment the wall came down in Berlin, Berlin went back to how it had been, right? It's just oh, yeah. a queer creative city now. And so that's also, I made this work <laughs> where I did etchings. And then I animated my etchings. Mm-hmm. What an incredibly Catholic thing to do, right? Like, oh, etching's not enough work. I'll do more. Yeah. Work. <laughs> and then I made these huts, and uh, which had screen printed images of one of, of the statues, one for each statue, one for each grim fairy tale. And then you peeked in a peephole, and then magically you would see this animation inside. With it was with tablets and mirrors, mm. and so it was this idea of of queerness, individuality being contained, that you had to kind of peek into these huts to see it. So that, and there was one, there was a hut for each of the Grim Fairy Tales. So then I made a series of etchings, like there's a queer red riding hood, instead Mm -hmm. of a grandmother, he has a grandfather, and there's kind of a hunky wolf and a hunky woodsman. (laughs) (laughs) So... But it yeah. was great to make work that wasn't just gallery. It wasn't it wasn't just flat two dimensional work. It was yeah. much more time based. So, yeah, because I I remember looking at the documentation of of an exhibit of of these little huts and being like, that really looks like he's animated etchings. Like like so not just like I'm going to do an illustration. I know. That looks like an etching, but I was like, this looks like the the, the real thing. So yeah. what was that process like? It was, I mean, originally, I mean, what's nice when I've shown the work, and I had this show in Philadelphia I mentioned, is that, and some other locations in Berlin as well, but I would show the films and then I would have the real etching. So you would oh, see the cool. puppets. Yeah. But the, I have a good friend who's the, technology director at Denison where I teach Christian Farr and he he said Ron if you do stop motion it's going to take you forever and so we set up this kind of system where I would scan everything on Photoshop and I would use a MIDI to play the puppets Mm. as much and record them right and then I could edit them and I edited them on top of footage live action footage I took and also my husband who's a musician did electronic soundtracks that were kind of abstractions of 70s and 80s songs. Oh, cool. So like I think when when wrote, the road caption film is 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 being seen you hear which is Red Riding Hood you hear a soundtrack where he's acted the eurythmics the love nice. is so Yeah. And you and the nice thing too is you have the huts have no you don't see any cords so we have these huts these tablets that are that have batteries that they've been charged and then you have headphones but and even finding the people is a little mysterious too so yeah what a cool like immersive experience Mm -hmm. for for viewers and and that the 
getting the physicality of the viewer in on the exploration, I think is, is very, very clever. Yeah. Yeah. The next step that happened after that uh, is I did a final people where I had a, a friend, Blake Turner here in Columbus, who was curating his backyard shed for contemporary artists where they would have exhibitions in his shed. Uh-huh. And so he said, Ron, you could do a people in my shed. And so then I created a, a larger scale version of it where we drilled peepholes in a shed and you would look in and see this piece, which was. That's so cool. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Cause you know, and, and then, you know, that like the very, the very phrase peephole, I mean, it just, it just implies that this kind of like forbiddenness, this yeah. salaciousness a little bit, mm-hmm. the seeing what maybe what you're not supposed to, but you want to hidden knowledge. I mean, just, yeah, it, it works. It works in so many different ways. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And maybe that's also a, a printmaking aesthetic because, and I always tell my students this, oh, you should look at a, you should look at a print from far away, but then you have to go look mm. at it from like, you know, two inches close. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You've, you've spoken before about art as a vehicle for empathy, mm-hmm. which I really, I really like. And I just would love to maybe hear you talk about it in this context too, and and your thoughts on it, because it seems really intuitively true to me and, and really important. It's such a difficult political time right now. Yeah. A lot, there's a lot of issues happening for queer people. That's very difficult. And Mm -hmm. so, and so much of it comes from fear and hatred. Right. And I think especially in regard to fear, having been someone who was repressed And so much of that is about a a fear of something that is unknown or something that really you have no control over. I think the more diversity of artists who have voices, the more we see a range of artists' voices at Prince Santa Fe, I'm sure that's going to happen, is that there's an awareness of others' lives and others' experiences. And I think... I think it's the benefit of the autonomy of an artwork that allows that empathy to occur, right? That you're looking mm. at work and you're aware of an artist's hand and you're aware that they come from a totally different perspective than you do. And, you know, for people, I think travel does that a lot too, but for mm-hmm. those who can't travel, exposure to a range of artists, a diversity of artists' voices, hearing artists speak, it is so valuable at all times, but especially right now. Hmm. Yeah. And, and that there's something in the nature of an art object that I think it can be really personal, but also slightly divorced from the maker. Mm-hmm. And I think that that makes it sort of a spa- safe place socially for people to let guard down when it comes to empathy. Because if you're someone standing in front of you and there's like a confrontational element of it, of sort of like, this is my life. Why won't you let me live it? You know, Mm -hmm. but, but when that, just that message about someone's experience can be really intimate, but also safe for Mm -hmm. someone to stand and like, let themselves open themselves up to it. I think that can be a really significant way to get into empathy as well, you know, whether it's an etching or a film or a piece of music, it, it, you can 
become vulnerable to new ideas mm-hmm. without feeling the pressure of of performing socially at all for someone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and not all prints are small. Uh-huh. <laughs> great prints, you know, I'm sure we're going to see them in Santa Fe, right? There's gigantic prints, right? Mm-hmm. But I think for me, the, this, I mean, I've been pretty consistent that I've, over the years, I've worked fairly small, right? I mean, I've worked really small and now I'm, you know, I've done the 18 by 24 plates. And I mean, I mean that's not even small for some artists, but mm-hmm. there's something for me, there's that intimacy of vulnerability, of empathy that comes from the smallness of the work that I make, that I think I do desire for people to see something that's different than who they are, right? But then have an engagement with it from their own perspectives. I, I've been, it's been really nice to have people see my work, especially this year, see my work and respond to it so positively, mm. right? That, and it's, it's not to compliment me, it's to say that it meant something for them. So that I, I, so that is for the shy kid growing up, that means so much. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I definitely have, have seen that happen just in the, the portfolio exchange show hanging mm-hmm. it. I was hanging it with our friend here. Josh and he just he just was so in love with your etching and was like ah like I need to I need to sell my work at Print Santa Fe so I can so I can buy this piece and you know I mean it's just I think I think for him it was really seeing a piece of him mm-hmm. in the work that just was affirming and beautiful and I think that that's such a powerful experience particularly for people who have personal narratives that aren't mainstream that mm-hmm. aren't I don't know I always think about it sometimes in terms of like of of movies and characters we see in movies you know like like is there when was the last time there was a movie made where the main character was gay and the movie wasn't about them being gay You're they right. were just like a gay person having experience or black yeah you know like or trans that it's like this is just a human having a human experience it doesn't have anything to do with these identities, but like we don't get to see that mm-hmm. and we don't see it. We don't see it winning Oscars and we don't see it on HBO shows. Like we just don't see it. And so that to me is such a, a, a temperature taking for what we still consider a mainstream identity or a mainstream life. And so when you're not fitting into that category when you do see your life taking center stage, it's incredibly powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Mm-hmm. I want to make sure we get a chance to maybe circle back to the the queer graphics course, mm-hmm. which you mentioned at the top of the hour that was just sounded really interesting because I, I feel like that the comic books and printmaking and all of that has an element of of subculture, of being transgressive a bit that of course can overlap with queer culture. And mm-hmm. I'm just super curious about what mm-hmm. that course is and, and what it means to, to you as a, mm-hmm. as a thinker and a maker. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've, I have taught this class for 11 years and I'm at a small liberal arts college in the middle of central Ohio. Right. Mm-hmm. And, so, and we have queer studies. So Denison's a pretty progressive place in regard to what you teach. And so I created this studio art course, which we, I, we use research to a certain extent. There's readings 
and it's primarily focused on queer history, queer artist history. Oh, cool. But it, inherently, it also deals with issues that are happening during the times that it's being taught. And so uh, we do exploring queer aesthetics. We do things like we, there's a, sometimes a focus on Andy Warhol and the act of appropriation. Mm-hmm. That is a way of speaking in code for many queer artists, especially in the in the 60s and 70s and beyond and before. And so we deal with appropriation. We deal with printed manner. We deal with DIY print mm-hmm. culture. And uh, over the years, I think because printmaking inherently is is a is the medium of protest, we have used a lot of screen printing. We recently, in the past couple of years, got a risograph printer. <laughs> so we nice. have zines. Students make zines. When I taught the course on the 50th anniversary of Stonewall, mm-hmm. students read first-person narratives on Stonewall, and they made zines for the stories that they read. The class usually ends with a fundraiser that we make all – Made, we make lots of multiples in that course, T-shirts on different oh, cool. yeah, political themes. And then over the past few years, we've used we've had a sale at the end of this year, and the funds often go to this queer teen center here in Columbus, Ohio. So that idea of community, the connection to history, it, it's it. it I, I'm always excited to teach. I have, I have my sabbatical replacement. Brett Taylor's teaching it this semester, so it's a it's a pretty vibrant course. I'm also very happy that there are so there's such an awareness now of queer printmakers that's happening mm-hmm. at conferences, panel discussions. And so that is, again, reflecting the diversity of what the print community is about now. From being in the arts, being particularly in, in, in the print world, it seems like the world with the younger generation is just getting queerer and cooler and more talented and more progressive and more brilliant and more open. And, and I really hope that's true. You know, I hope that Mm -hmm. it's not just like my little perspective because of where I am, but I think that's just such a, a wonderful vision for what people are bringing into adulthood now Mm -hmm. that didn't seem as present 20 years ago when when my generation was bringing it into adulthood it still mm-hmm. wasn't wasn't as developed mm-hmm. you know and so I, I i really hope that that's true you know <laughs> yeah. yeah i i think that's reflective on your podcast too miranda mm. that you know it when i was in school it, there were some strong lines between being a painter, being a printmaker, being a sculptor. It was very much a modernist hierarchy that mm-hmm. sometimes made it difficult to cross over. I think that's so, I think that is all breaking down. So, yeah. and so the nature of the guests that I've heard you speak to, they're approaching, you know, yeah, they're approaching printmaking from an appreciation of the discipline. And also I think the communal aspect that brings people together in the discipline, but they're doing so many different things, right? Like yeah. Approaching it. I know you had a performance artist recently and mm-hmm. bookmakers. And so to me, that's what continually inspires me to keep making prints and being, and being part of it all. So that yeah. interdisciplinary kind of postmodern perspective that, okay, you don't have to label yourself, right? And even from a queer perspective, for me, being a gay man comes from a certain generation to use that mm-hmm. word. And But queer, now it's so fluid and it's so embracing of all identities in regard to the, you know, what it means to be queer, what it means to feel different. Just thinking of, of the 
the kind of evolution of of the word queer and how it does sort of follow a trajectory into a healthier sort of more postmodern mindset. Mm-hmm. I remember I don't even know where it where I heard it. It might have been in a documentary about David Bowie, but it was someone talking about how he has a line in five years off the uh, yeah. absolutely perfect album Ziggy Stardust yes. about the cop knelt and kissed the feet of a priest and the queer threw up at the side of it. Yeah. And it was someone saying how that was the first time it was, it was a gay man. He was saying it was the first time he heard that word used in a non-derogatory yeah. way. It was such a bad word when I was growing up. Yeah. 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 And like this, and, and that it was clear from, well, from, David Bowie's whole persona, but also the context of the song that it, it wasn't being used as a slur in that context. It was, it was, mm-hmm. it was, it was saying that like, here's this community showing disgust for this other community, mm-hmm. rightfully so. And, and yet now it's, it's used so, so frequently. And, and as you say, as a catch-all for, for anything that is different, which I think is actually, it's like root word. Bef- like you mm-hmm. see it, the way it's used sort of early on before mm-hmm. people even conceived of sort of sexuality as we do now. Queer just meant strange or like not mm-hmm. not normal. And so I think, mm-hmm. as you say, anyone who who feels that way or, or who wants anything besides a wife and a husband and 2.5 children and, you know, like all of that can, can kind of feel a refuge in the word and identity with it. Yeah. You know, and that it's interesting you brought up David Bowie because that the early eighties is my generation, right? Mm -hmm. When I was coming of age in my twenties and, you know, at that time the world was becoming pretty queer. Like we had new wave, we had boy George, everything was moving in that kind of trajectory forward. But then AIDS happened and mm-hmm. political, how that was handled politically kind of set everything back. It's interesting that we're living in a time that feels like things could be set back, right? Like that's what makes it very scary again after know, all this movement right? forward, right? Yeah. And that, and that, that social progression isn't inevitable. Mm-hmm. Um is is really is really freaky and i think it's part of the reason why it's important to have intergenerational conversations and intergenerational communities because it's important to talk to people who remember the ebb and the flow mm-hmm. and and you know okay like what did we do last time <laughs> you know <laughs> <laughs> and and that sort of thing and yeah there's there's a, I don't know if you know but there's a really famous clip of 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 David Bowie on a talk show right when he's at like peak Ziggy Stardust and he has his orange mullet and wearing some sort of striped thing and he's wearing these huge platform shoes uh-huh. and the the guest says well what kind of shoes are these are these men's shoes or women's shoes and he says they're shoe shoes silly <laughs> No, I don't know that I'll quote. Send you the clip. It's so great. It's so great. And it's, I mean, it's probably 1979, 1980. And it's just like, here's this person who's who's already completely ending the binary, mm-hmm. you know? And and that, yeah, that that was that was watching, right? Like it was on 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 around in television homes and yeah. and and then of course then 
well, then, then we have like Reaganism, right? And like, yeah. <laughs> and those people exist throughout history too. I'm, I'm doing this researching Pasolini, right, for this mm, new series. Yeah. And, you know, he was openly out in the 50s. Right? Yeah. And there's a film he made called Tiro Rima that was, I think, 1968, mm-hmm. that it's an allegory, but the stranger comes into a home and has has an affair with everybody in the family. <laughs> and then they have these cosmic experiences. So it's the father, the mother, the daughter, the son, the maid. Uh-huh. Right? And so you look at it, and it was made in 1968. You look at it and it predates like something David Lynch would made, right? Yeah. And Pasolini also, sadly, he was he was killed in a, in a, a hate crime in yeah. 1970, in the 70s. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it is that I'm not going to, I'm going to get it, get the quote wrong, but that like the, the arc of justice is long, but it bent, the arc arc of time is long, but it bends towards justice. What is it? The, it basically means that like, even when shit's getting worse overall, it's getting better. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> is essentially what it is. And, and that I think as we've spoken to over the course of our, of our conversation, Art has such a powerful role to play yeah. in that as a yeah. as a culture creator, as a as a needle mover, as mm-hmm. just visibility. You know, mm-hmm. talking about like David Bowie on primetime television mm-hmm. showing up in shoes that refusing to gender his shoes. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like like mm-hmm. somebody saw that and saw something in their self that otherwise they never would have seen before. And and so that's such a powerful force in what creating work that creates visibility does, even if it does nothing mm-hmm. else other than just like let people see themselves. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's always been so important for me is that that pop culture has a, has embedded itself on my own identity, right? Some of that's not good, right? Some of it's like <laughs> I was raised by wolves, but, <laughs> but there's like the, David Bowie was so important for me, but also important for my husband who was raised in Germany, right? So mm. he's a beacon amongst others that life, as the phrase goes, life gets better, right? Mm-hmm. So I was thinking about what you said too, in regard to justice, Miranda, and isn't one of the things about being a prim- printmaker is having the tenacity to be optimistic. Like, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, this, oh, this proof is horrible, but if I change this, this will be better, right? Or totally. mess this up, right? <laughs> totally. Or like, or like, well, I mean, like printmakers don't really become millionaires, but like, that's all right. Like, like they have trouble getting shows, but that's just because people don't know printmaking yet. I just need to explain to them the joy and yeah. then, you know. <laughs> Absolutely. I love that. I love that. Yeah. There's something I think, yeah, you're inherently optimistic about being in printmaking. You have to stick to it. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Well, Ron, what do you have on the horizon? Speaking of looking forward to things and and optimism. Well, I'm in, as I said, I'm in countdown mode to be at Prince Santa Fe. And I'm going to have the work at Zane Bennett, but also at the fair with Mm -hmm. their booth there. Yep. And at the booth, I have I have some T-shirts. I've made some T-shirts inspired by my etchings that I'll have there, along with some more prints that they asked for to have. And then here in Columbus, the, I use the Columbus Printed Art Center, which is a great print studio run by Alyssa and Sean Smith. And they are hosting their first Columbus Art Book Fair. 
Oh, great. So then I'll, I'm going to have a table there and I'm going to have some prints for sale there. And also I'm making some new books and stickers and also T-shirts. Again, awesome. pop culture printed matter. I was going to say, you're <laughs> getting into the pop culture. That's wonderful. I'm embracing the inclusiveness of it all. Yeah. And where can people find you and follow you and yes. see what you're up to? You can find me on Instagram, Abram Graphics. And graphics is G-R-A-F-I-K-S. It's the German way. And you can also find me online, www.ronabram.com. Wonderful. Well, thank you so very much. And I honestly can't wait to meet you in person very shortly at Print Santa Fe. I am so excited, Miranda. And I, I you know, appreciate the conversation so much. And we even talked about David Bowie. So we've got a, a lot of good spirit happening as, as we go to Santa Fe. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much. If you like today's episode, we have a Patreon where you can help us keep the lights on and get bonus content. Like Shop Talk Shorts, where our editor, Timothy Pauschak, digs deep on materials, processes, and techniques with past guests. Also, if monetary support isn't in the cards right now, you can leave a review for us on your podcast listening app of choice or buy something from one of our sponsors and tell them Hello Print Friend sent you. But as always, the very, very best thing you can do to support this podcast is by listening and sharing with your fellow print friends around the world. And that's our show for this week. Join me again next week when my guest will be Celeste de Luna. We talk about growing up as a Gen Z latchkey kid in the Rio Grande Valley who had a love of books and animals. How an encounter with a steamroller printing event saved her from a life as a tortured painter. The distinction between protest art and art that tells your story and what it means to have a Catholic imagination. You won't want to miss it. This episode, like all episodes, was written and produced by me, Miranda Metcalf, with editing by Timothy Pauschak and music by Joshua Weber. I'll see you next week.